Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. We continue our series, Men of a Thousand Voices, with an episode of The Player, starring Paul Fries. This aired sometime in 1948, and the title is... The small African seaport of Barter sweltered in the hot tropical sun. The beehive-shaped homes and granaries of the native Senegalese showed hard and black in the little village's skyline, topped only by the white tower the refuge of the Holy Mother, the village's little sanctuary, the only structural evidence of the culture of another world. To the two men sitting in the office of the barter trading post, the white tower of the sanctuary shimmered and moved in heat waves, almost disappearing and then returning, moving out of focus and then back, tantalizing the eyes, almost like a mirage. And so begins another story by The Player, America's most versatile actor, Mr. Paul Fries. But here, before we begin our story, is your announcer. And here is your star, the player, Mr. Paul Fries. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is the player welcoming you to our presentation of Mirage. Two men sat in the trading post office looking out on the dirty brown village. Neither spoke for a moment. Then the little man with the sharp black eyes turned to his heavy-set companion. Well, Graf, I assume you'd like to know the details of my proposition. Yeah, I have always found it important. Well, in my last trip to the interior, I discovered a new and valuable gold field near White Mountain. I see. But what proof do you give? Oh, you've seen the essays. Of course I have, but where do the SS come from? That is the detail which I must know. Graf, you and I both know there isn't a property in the territory which could produce ore to assay like the sample showed you. Uh, Providing what you say is so, what is it you want from me? 
I want two things, Graf. First? First, I need money for the original development. <laughs> original developments are expensive. What do you offer me? I offer you 50% of the value of the holdings. 50%? Oh, you... This is not enough. But look, Graf, I've worked and slaved and sweated for this claim. I've grown into an old man looking for it, an old man at 35. Come on, be reasonable. Oh, I'm sorry, Becker. It must be 70% with no division of profits until my original investment in the property is back in my pocket. Becker knew he was forced to accept the other man's terms no matter what they were. He spoke slowly. Okay, Graf. You got yourself an agreement. And uh, now that we have the first detail settled, what is the second, huh? The second is that we must take possession of the property immediately. But you said that you have already filed claims. I have. But this mine's too valuable. To protect our interest, we shouldn't lose a day. We should take possession immediately. Once we've begun development, we're safe. I see. Well, then we must take the next boat to Cape Race. From there, the trip up the river will make it easy. That won't be a boat for Cape Race in a month. We can't wait that long. Well, then what do you suggest? I suggest we leave here immediately. But this is dangerous country between here and White Mountain. It is uncharted. It'd be much safer to wait and leave from Cape Race. Yeah, safer for us, perhaps. But I'm afraid we can't afford to wait. But what about a safari? Could it be arranged? You know, that's an impossibility. The natives are superstitious about this country. Superstitious? Huh? And why? Mirage. Yeah, this is the land of mirages. Oh, <laughs> the natives are fools. Then it is you and me, Becker. Yeah, Graf. You and me. And I might add, you have chosen wisely for your partner, Becker. <laughs> when you went up from Cape Race, that was simple. But going through from here, it is something else. The jungle here is unexplored. We have no landmarks to follow. The mirage makes it only that much more difficult. But with this, I will get us through to White Mountain. Graf held up a fine bronze compass. This will be our directional finder. Yeah. When do we start? We uh, can get our packs and supplies ready today. We will start tomorrow. The following morning, the two men took a last look at the mud houses and the dirty bay waters of Barter that topped the palisade at the edge of the jungle, and then they disappeared into the tall grass. The trip from Barter to the mountain was a dangerous one, not because of the terrain, but because of the mirages and the possibility of getting lost. But Becker knew that Graf would get them through. That was the important thing. The first day passed without eventuality. But on the second day out of barter, the sun broke in blazing fury. And as the two men toiled along, tempers became shorter and shorter. At noon, they reached the muddy waters of a small stream and picked their way down slowly to where the bridgeway of rocks formed a natural crossing. They were halfway across when suddenly, without warning, Becker lost his footing and tumbled headlong into the brown water. Help! Grab! Help! You! Grab my hands! My hands, you fool! Ah! Now you have done it! You lost one of the water bags! Doomkop! You fool! I'm sorry! Sorry for being clumsy? That water feels so cool! Ah, you! Come on before you fall in again! Graf led the way and the two men continued their march. 
It was late that afternoon when Becker began to lag behind. And when they camped that night, Graf could see the unmistakable signs of fever in the glazed eyes and trembling hands of his partner. Evidently, the tumble into the stream had done it. Graf cursed him silently for that and was glad that they only had one more day of the journey. The following morning, Becker rose pale and white, and the heavy man was forced to take most of his burden on his own shoulders. The little man stopped for frequent rest, and the delay added to Graf's anger. He began to regret the fact that he'd pulled Becker out of the stream. The day grew hotter and hotter, and the extra burden on his shoulders became heavier and heavier. Becker kept crying for water, and they had little enough to get them to White Mountain. And then suddenly they began to see the mirages, the ones which the natives feared so much. First, there was a herd of wild beasts, clear and distinct, covered only by the heat waves. Then the herd disappeared as if by some magic hand. Just after noon, Graf saw a lake, cool and glistening out of the wasteland. Becker cried out for the water he saw, and then moaned as it vanished. By this time, he was completely out of his head, raving. Slowly, a plan began to grow in the heavy man. Becker was delaying them. The one water bag was nearly empty. There was just enough to get strong men to White Mountain. Graf knew where the mine was. He could start the development alone. And the trip down the river to Cape Race could be an easy one. Wouldn't it be better to leave Becker? He reached slowly for the heavy caliber gun on his hip. And then Becker seemed to realize what the heavy man's plans were. And he was upon Graf before he could pull out the gun, a glistening hunting knife in his hand. The knife flashed in the sun as they met, and Becker drove it home with maniacal fury. But something in Graf's pocket deflected it, and the big man got a hand on the other's wrist. It was a strange sight, there in the jungle wasteland, two men fighting bitterly in a death struggle. Graf found the little man surprisingly strong, regardless of his illness. But soon he began to weaken, and with a crashing blow, Graf sent him sprawling into the sand. There was blood on the little man's mouth. He looked up at Graf, pitiful appeal in his eyes, which the other man didn't see. Graf freed the automatic from his holster. Three quick shots and it was over. Graf assembled the packs and then discovered with dismay that the ground under one of them was damp. One bullet from his gun had pierced the last water bag. A wave of apprehension came over him. But then he looked ahead at White Mountain and his fears quieted. There was water there. He could make it. He moistened his lips in the damp sand and then picked up his packs and started off. He headed down a small ravine which blotted the horizon from view. And when he reached the top, he suddenly stopped. Out there in front of him, the slopes of White Mountain shimmered and wavered and disappeared. He looked to the left of him and there it was, the rocky outline, but only for a moment. And then it was gone. He turned around, and it was behind him, quickly appearing, only to vanish as quickly. And suddenly the fear of the natives gripped him. Mirage! Mirage! His hot lips spoke the word, and his whole body trembled. Mirage! But then he knew he mustn't lose his head. They had been in the jungle three days. White Mountain was near. It must be near. Only a few hours away at the most. And all he needed was the direction. He reached quickly into his breast pocket to pull out the compass. 
He looked at it slowly, comprehendingly. It was torn and twisted and bent. The needle limply dropped on the sand. There it was, the compass which had repelled Becker's knife thrust and saved his life. And so ends another story by The Players, starring your one-man theater, Paul Fries, who portrays all of the parts. Mr. Fries will return in just a moment after a few words from your announcer. was written by Rich Hall and produced by Sam Kerner, with music composed and performed by Rami Idris. Special effects by Fred Cole. Your announcer was Gary Goodwin. Won't you join us again when we present another exciting story for your entertainment? This is The Player, Paul Freeze saying goodbye. Until next, we meet. Welcome back. Well, as expected, the only real big difference between the player and Studio X is just the different announcer. And I've not found any real uh, information as to why one's called one thing and what the different productions did. As to the episode itself, I had mixed feelings on this one. Obviously a good performance by Paul Freese. This one really felt like it could have used breathing room and more effects. I could really see this story being half an hour long. Some really interesting stuff just got exposited over. But I didn't think it was bad, just not particularly suited to the format. 
All right, well now let's talk about other Men of a Thousand Voices. Not all of them did shows like this. The most famous Man of a Thousand Voices was Mel Blanc. Blank, of course, originated most of the great Looney Tunes characters. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Speedy Gonzales, and so many others, as well as Barney Rubble and Cosmo Spaceland. And seriously, I could go on. He did a lot of work with Jack Benny, both on radio and on television. And of course he had a you know very varied uh, radio career and was given his own radio series, The Mel Blanc Show, where he ended up not playing all the voices, but he played multiple characters. And in addition, there were multiple episodes where the solution to all of his problems was to start doing a bunch of imitations. Now, obviously having that as a writing crutch, something that made for a great radio series, it only lasted a single season, and I think it was probably one of the bigger waste of times of his career. Although your mileage may vary with the Mel Blanc show. Carl Swenson was known for his vocal dexterity, which was part of the reason he was given the New York-based program of Mr. Chameleon, where he played a detective who would disguise himself and become another character. Currently playing that on the great detectives of old-time radio on Tuesdays. There were others who tried, but didn't quite have the vocal dexterity. We played the series one out of seven back in 2020 as part of the Jack Webb Centennial, where Webb would uh, report on uh, news stories of the day and do dramatic reenactments playing all the characters. Some of Webb's colleagues at the a KGO a radio station joked that he was the man of a thousand voices, all of them the same. I don't think that was quite fair, but Jack Webb didn't really have the vocal dexterity to pull off the program in the same way that Frank Graham or Paul Freese did. Now, obviously, in the 21st century, there's going to be a question, well, were there any women of a thousand voices? Well, there were certainly women with the ability to do a wide variety of different voices, particularly in Hollywood old-time radio programs. People like uh, Virginia Gregg, Peggy Weber, Betty Lou Gerson, uh, Jeanette Nolan, had a wide variety of voices they could do, great amount of vocal dexterity, but never really went in for a sort of woman of a thousand voices top program. Virginia Gregg, it was said, could sit while a radio program was being recorded after doing one part and just sit there and knit and wait until it's time for her to do another part and then pop up and take that part. So I think many of them could have done something like that. In addition, out in New York on Broadway in the 1930s, there was kind of a mini trend that I observed while I was listening through the existing episodes of Rudy Valley's Flashman's Yeast Hour and Royal Gelatin Hour. There were female stars who would perform monologues, playing all of the characters in it. Cornelia 
Otis Skinner was probably the best known of these performers, but I couldn't find any of her monologues in my brief uh, searching through my Rudy Valley program, or at least not in great condition for the podcast. But I did find this one monologue in pretty good condition by Virginia Sale. It's from the Flashman's Yeast Hour uh, from September the 13th, 1934. Let's go ahead and take a listen. The scene, the promenade deck, the SS Megantic, homeward bound after a Mediterranean cruise. It is the last night of the voyage, a night marvelously well supplied with moonlight. A boy and a girl are alone on deck, watching the moon's reflection in the calm sea and listening to the music of an orchestra in the nearby ballroom. Oh, this is better. You don't mind my dragging you out here, do you, Ronald? I simply couldn't stand that stuffy ballroom another minute. What a gorgeous moon. You know, I can't believe we'll be back in New York tomorrow morning. The time has gone so quickly. Oh, well, I'm glad I met you, Ronald. Oh, you're sweet to say that. Thank you. Well, I think you look rather handsome yourself tonight, dear. And just think, after tomorrow, we'll each begin to forget what the other looks like. Ronald, just look at those two stars right up there, all alone in the sky, just as you and I are alone on this long white deck. Oh, Ronnie, Ronnie, I've been looking everywhere for you. Oh, hello, Alice. Oh, hello. Ronnie, you bad boy, you must be all mixed up. Wasn't this our dance? It wasn't. Well, you don't want to dance two dances with me all last night on board. You and I certainly have had the worst time getting together today. You didn't feel well enough to go for a swim, and you had lunch early, and then I waited and waited for you to come and play deck swimmer. You're always so polite to everybody, Ronnie. I suppose you just can't get away from some folks to be with the folks you really want to be with. But I guess you and I can have this next dance together anyway. I had it with Freddie Wilson, but I haven't seen him anywhere. Oh, he was? Well, just a minute ago? Well, uh, yes, I uh, guess I'd better go look for him. I'll see you all later. Oh, Ronald, uh, do you mind letting me have a bit of your coat? It's uh, getting rather chilly out here. Oh, there. Oh, that's better. Mmm, I like that music. With my eyes wide open, I'm dreaming. Hmm, it's lovely, isn't it? Ronald, what was it you said you wanted to tell me tonight? Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mrs. Brother. Land sake, you two will catch your death of cold out here. My, I'll sure be glad to get back home to Peoria. My folks thought they were sending me on a rescue, but sure, with that music a-banging and folks carousing around all night and... Awful hard for a body to get any sleep. Well, everybody's saying goodbye this evening. They're even kissing officers goodbye. I just noticed that highfalutin Mrs. Jordan kissing the first mate. Sure, she kissed him three or four times. I reckon her husband must be seasick again. Well, I expect I better go and try to get some sleep. Miss Blair, I should think you'd have a chill standing there in that dress and no sleeves, no back to it. Good night, Mr. Kirkwood. <laughs> You're certainly popular with the old ladies, Ronald. You're always so sweet to everyone. That's one reason why I like you. Why, yes, of course I do. A great deal. 
But I haven't always been sure that you like me. You do very much, very, very much. Heavens, what lazy people you two are, wasting a bracing night like this. A grand chance to get some real good exercise. Why don't you join me in a turn around the deck? You see, I always walk around six times before going to bed, five times in the morning, and four after lunch. That makes 15 times a day. And 15 days on this cruise makes 225 times around this deck. I doubt if anyone else in the ship has a record like that. You won't join me? Very well. Uh, goodbye, then. Good luck. Goodbye. Uh, what uh, were you saying, Ronald? Uh, was it something about the music? Oh, listen. I like that piece. Couldn't we dance it out here? Oh, oh I love dancing with you, Ronald. Oh, you're holding me very tight. Why? Oh, I'm Ronald, dear. Oh, there you are, you two. Oh, good evening, Miss Sister. I just knew I'd find you two in love this out here in the moonlight. <laughs> I've been telling everybody on board I expected a wedding any day. <laughs> I think you're a perfectly stunning couple. <laughs> oh, there, now I know I'm making Mr. Kirkwood blush. <laughs> He's such a shy young man, isn't he, Miss Slayer? <laughs> And Mr. Kirkwood doesn't seem look just too sweet. Anybody can tell she's dressed up in her very prettiest just to please you this last night on board. <laughs> well, I'm just buzzing about telling everybody goodbye. And if I don't see you two again before we land, be sure you send me your wedding announcement. Goodbye, you two. <laughs> oh, what are we talking about, Ronald? Uh, you say it's not a bad idea she had. Why, what do you mean? Really, send her our wedding announcement. Why, Ronald, dear, are you really proposing? Ronnie, oh, Ronnie, where are you? I can't find Betty anywhere, Ronnie. Ronald, darling, let's go into the ballroom where we can be alone together. Welcome back. Well, it was a pretty simple plot, but I thought it was very well performed. If I had it known better, I wouldn't have noticed that it was just one woman working. So some great vocal dexterity in that particular role. And uh, there were others uh, in the Flashman run, but I, I think you get an idea. This was a, a type of performance usually done on stage. So uh, this type of thing, particularly when it was done by someone like uh, Cornelia Otis Skinner, was being uh, transported from the stage to uh, radio. And you can still find, uh, on occasion, actors and actresses who do these sort of... Uh, uh, one-person programs, you know, in terms of monologues, but it you have to be very good at learning the lines and the vocal dexterity, and it's a very niche audience uh, for that sort of thing, particularly if you're not a well-known celebrity. Like, you know, I think that there are some performers people would come out for, you know, even if they were not generally into monologues. It's definitely an art form, and I hope you enjoyed that little extra peek. 
Uh, I do have one show-related announcement. I'd mentioned that we were going to do 13 episodes or 13 weeks on this program. I'm actually going to change that to 12 weeks. We're going to have a double episode, so we're not going to reduce the number of uh, episodes you're going to hear. But we'll have one week where we play an episode of Nightcap Yarns and an episode of one of Paul Free's uh, programs. And this will also be a podcast over on the Great Detectives program to kind of uh, promote what we're doing over here. I'm still working out the timing, but I just thought I'd let you know. All right, well, that will do it for today. If you do have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Join us back here next week for Nightcap Yarns. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.